Hello and welcome back to Know Better, Do Better podcast. I'm your host, Marie Beecham, and I teach you about race and equity and all the stuff that you'd like to know a bit better. If you're new here, this episode is a fantastic place to start. This is the first episode of a Black History Month series, and by the end of the month, you'll have learned every major milestone in Black history in the U.S. The Tuesday episodes will each focus on a time period, so you'll learn the major events, the milestones that marked that time period. And on Thursdays of that same week, we'll spotlight a specific leader or influential person from that time period. That way you can learn about the life and legacy of some of the most influential Black people in U.S. history. This design of going back and forth between time periods overall and specific figures is just beautiful because you will learn the big important facts and you'll also learn the fascinating, unbelievable stories of individuals. So let's get right into the episode. I'll teach you the stuff you didn't know about slavery and we're going to start by debunking three of the most common myths about slavery as identified by Edward E. Baptist in his book, The Half That Has Never Been Told. This book examines the time period of slavery by specifically listening to the voices of the enslaved people themselves. And he identifies the three common myths that people believe today about slavery. In his words, quote, these are the three myths. One is that slavery did not cause in any significant way the development and transformation of the U.S. economy. Two is that slavery was not a modern or dynamic labor system. And three, that what was happening in the South was a separate thing from the rest of the U.S. So starting with myth one. Myth one, he says, is the belief that slavery wasn't the driving force of the U.S. economy. And he explains the myth and argues against it by saying this. This argument has often been used to diminish the scale of slavery, reducing it to a crime committed by a few Southern planters, one that did not touch the rest of the United States. He explains that the myth here is that slavery was an inefficient system and that the labor of the enslaved was not as that of a free worker being paid a wage. So slavery didn't really give the U.S. a leg up because free workers being paid wages worked even better than the enslaved. It was meant to further the U.S. economy, but it didn't really have that big of an impact. Baptists himself and other historians unanimously agree that this myth is untrue. The myth that slavery was not core to U.S. economy or critical to the U.S.'s economy is just that. It's a myth. And in his words, slavery was, quote, a thoroughly modern business, one that was continuously changing to maximize profits. And that leads into myth two. Myth two being that slavery was not a modern or dynamic system. But as we'll uncover in this episode, the institution of slavery was complex and changing for the sake of profit. Slavery changed in many ways, significant ways, and that's one of the biggest things I'll be clarifying throughout this episode. Because I think people see slavery as a pretty steady time period. We know that it was awful, but we assume that it looked pretty much the same from start to finish. So I'll make the evolution of slavery really clear. But the third and final myth we'll debunk is this. That what was happening in the South was separate from the rest of the U.S. Baptist explains it like this. The third myth about this is that there was not a tight relationship between slavery in the South and what was happening in the North and other parts of the modern Western world in the 19th century. But it was a very close relationship, meaning that white people in the South were by no means the only beneficiaries from this exploitation. He goes on to say, the slavery economy of the U.S. South was deeply tied financially to the North, 
and to Britain to the point that we can say that people who were buying financial products in these other places were, in effect, owning slaves and were certainly extracting money from the labor of enslaved people. That clears up myth three, the myth that only the South was benefiting from the system of slavery. Even those who weren't in the South and enslaving people benefited from the financial gain, obtaining the products that came from slavery. So those are just some myths we wanted to tidy up and square away. You might note that I'm not saying the term slave owners or masters. I prefer the term enslavers. Because even when we're talking about things like, this person ran away and they were returned to their owner. From my perspective, that choice of words might seem to suggest agreement that the enslaved person is rightfully owned by another. I know that's not what anybody else means. I wouldn't say that that's what someone's intending to imply when they speak of owners. But for the most part, I'll be using the term enslavers. And for the most part, rather than using the term slaves, I think enslaved people gets at the reality much better. Because slaves tells us this is who they are, but enslaved people communicates that this is what was done to them. So with all of that said and those myths cleared away, now we're going to get into the five big things you need to know. Let's start with number one, the first thing you need to know about slavery in the United States. As one article in Time put it, what happened in 1619 was not a beginning, but a turning point. This article recounts that in August of 1619, Cape merchant Abraham Piercy bought the, quote, 20 and odd Negroes aboard a ship in exchange for food. These first enslaved Africans were traded for food. Such a trade had never before occurred in English North America, making this an ignominious milestone. And, quote, the Africans were captured from their home in present-day Angola. Back then, it was a Portuguese colony, and most of the enslaved are believed to have been captured during an ongoing war. And what we're talking about here is the beginning of the transatlantic slave trade. So on the journey alone, in the unbelievable deadly conditions, quote, almost two million Africans died during the Middle Passage. Trafficked Africans were forced to lie chained for weeks during the journey, unable to stretch out or stand up except for limited times. The foul conditions were a breeding ground for disease and vermin. Some captives suffocated from the lack of air below deck. On some ships, the mortality rate was as high as 33%. And Equal Justice Initiative offers this comparison. The 2 million Africans who died during the Middle Passage is nearly double all of the Americans who have died in every war fought since 1775 combined. I'll say that again. All in all, the number of Africans who died during the Middle Passage was nearly double all of the Americans who have ever died in every war fought since 1775 combined. So 1619, it marked a turning point, but it's clarified that it was a turning point and not a beginning. The enslaved people who were brought to now what we know as the U.S. in August of 1619, they're often thought of as the first Africans to set foot on North America. That's not true. Over a hundred years prior, actually, was the first documented time that an African had arrived in what we now know as the U.S. Some people think of August 1619 as the very first instance of slavery in the U.S. That's also far from true. Many people were indentured servants and many people were enslaved. And we'd have to have very selective memories to forget that what preceded this was the genocide and enslavement of indigenous people. So what occurred in 1619 
It was not a beginning, not necessarily the first, but it was a turning point. And I quote, Because of the central role of the English colonies in American history, this introduction of the transatlantic slave trade is central to this ugly and inescapable part of history. This type of race-based chattel slavery, which solidified in the centuries that followed, was its own unique American tragedy. So when we talk about what occurred in 1619, it was in many ways a catalyst for race-based chattel slavery, as we now know it. It was unprecedented, never before being executed in the way it was or at the scale it was. Now, as a disclaimer before we move on, I'll just say that some people don't like that this year, 1619, gets drilled into every lesson on slavery. And I think this perspective is worth voicing. Because whenever we say slavery, the year 1619 pops up. And we're all saying, wow, 400 years ago. 400 years ago, slavery started. 400 years ago, it began. Can you believe that? 400 years. Such a huge amount of time, I can't even wrap my brain around it. And we talk about the black struggle that started 400 years ago. But by referencing the most distant point in history and the least recent thing to have ever occurred, we might be taking more comfort in how much time has passed than we should be. So, you know, as an idea, it may be more helpful that when we're talking about the progression of black people in the United States and we're saying 400 years ago, being sure to always follow that up with something like, yeah, and less than 100 years ago, racial discrimination was still legal. Less than 100 years ago, every institution imaginable was segregated. Less than 100 years ago, the country was very, very dangerous for black people. Do you see the big difference there? So not all of the history is that far away. Not all of the history of blatant, gross racial oppression happened 400 years ago. But now that I have said that, we'll work our way up in history, but we're starting 400 years ago. So the first thing you needed to know is that what happened in 1619 was not a beginning, but a turning point. The second thing to know is that slavery wasn't just Southern. At the beginning of the episode, I clarified that white people in the South weren't the only ones to benefit from slavery, but they also weren't the only ones to practice slavery. As Edward E. Baptist points out, quote, something to remember is that slavery is everywhere in 1776. At the time of the Declaration of Independence, Slavery is legal in every one of the newly created 13 states. And for the most part, slavery is associated with the sectors of the economy closely connected to the Atlantic world. Systems of exchanges and markets that linked the new U.S. to Europe, to Africa, to the Caribbean, and to Latin America. That was the situation we were working with in 1776. Slavery is legal in every single state, but then there are various revolutions across the world. In Haiti, France, there are wars. And that's when things start to shift for the U.S. He continues, so slavery, on one hand, shifts to become a Southern institution. And at the same time, there's no longer as strong of a market demand for the products made in the South. But right at this same moment, Britain begins its process of industrialization. And what is Britain's focus on? Cotton textiles. And pretty quickly, the price for cotton rises dramatically. So what we have now is the rise of the cotton industry, the invention and distribution of the cotton gin. That was in 1793. The increased value of cotton, all of that came about quickly, suddenly, right before the year 1800. What was the year we were just talking about a minute ago? 1619? Yeah. 
a lot of time passed between those years. This is something I think a lot of people misunderstand. For well over a century, for nearly the first two centuries in the U.S. as we now know it, slavery was not picking cotton. The conditions were terrible, cruel, unjust, yes. I'm not saying this is good news or that their conditions were better than picking cotton, but I hope to clear up that slavery boomed with the cotton gin. That's a misunderstanding. Slavery had been going on for nearly two centuries before cotton became the primary focus. Because before that, there were all sorts of industries that were running largely on slave labor. So Baptist gives a few examples, saying that enslaved people were working in Virginia tobacco fields where they produced significant amounts of revenue for the British crown, working in the rice fields in South Carolina and Georgia, and also as dock workers and merchants in northern colonies like Boston, because at that point, slavery is everywhere. And it's only later that the primary industry is cotton. Much later. Slavery evolved a lot over time. And this leads us to the third thing, a key event that a lot of people don't realize, which is that the slave trade ended. The transatlantic slave trade, it ended long before slavery ended. So a lot of people talk about the slave trade and slavery interchangeably, but they're actually quite distinct. So yes, through the transatlantic slave trade, that is how slavery in the United States began. There was a continuous flow of captured and enslaved people from Africa. They were considered human cargo. But this came to an end because the U.S., quote, no longer relies on the African slave trade, which by the late 18th century is coming under more and more criticism. So the transatlantic slave trade ends. There's still an internal slave trade that continues. As you know, slave auctions and the transfer of enslaved people from one enslaver to another, that continued. But how is it that the U.S. was okay to no longer participate in the transatlantic slave trade? Well, if you're thinking it's because of a moral awakening, then you will be disappointed. If you've listened to the Critical Race Theory episodes, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Do you know the answer here? Yeah, it sounds a lot more like something called interest convergence. The interests of the U.S. and even enslavers were being met by no longer participating in the transatlantic slave trade because the population of enslaved people was already booming. Edward E. Baptist refers to this as reproductive labor. So in slavery, you have the theft of physical labor, such as the working of the fields, but there's also the theft of reproductive labor from enslaved people to get pregnant, have children, raise those children, and now those enslaved children are more human capital, more human cargo for the enslavers. And this reproductive labor, in lots of ways, was just as valuable for the enslavers as physical labor. It was very lucrative for enslavers that their population of enslaved people would multiply. And this is what was happening across the country. Baptist explains that through this process of growth of the enslaved population, the reproductive labor, if you will, that 800,000 enslaved people bought and sold through the transatlantic slave trade increases to 4 million enslaved people by 1860. From 800,000 to 4 million is five times growth. So while it's true that Congress outlawed the import of enslaved people in 1808, if you're just looking at the 50 years following that, the enslaved population nearly tripled. So quick review of some of the things we just went through. Slavery was not just Southern. At the time of the Declaration of Independence, slavery is legal everywhere. And even when slavery became just Southern, 
the North and many countries in the Western world were still benefiting from the slavery of the South. We also learned that slavery wasn't just cotton. In fact, it wasn't hardly cotton for the first nearly two centuries. So when we're talking about Eli Whitney and the cotton gin, we've fast-forwarded quite a bit. But with the introduction of cotton, the system of slavery operates much more like a machine, much more conscious of capitalism and how to maximize profits. And we learned that the transatlantic slave trade ended. Congress outlawed it in 1808, and people were A-OK with that because they needed no new enslaved people. Enslavers were enjoying the financial gain of their enslaved populations multiplying and rapidly growing because in many ways the human capital was in itself the most valuable resource. Thanks for listening. Before we get back to the episode, I want to tell you a bit about myself and my services. I'm Marie, a writer and speaker committed to teaching people about racial equity in a way that is practical, accessible, unifying, and nuanced. I speak at universities and schools, companies and nonprofit organizations, delivering in-person or virtual workshops designed to teach your group about topics of race and equity and anti-racism and all of that. If you're interested in these services, you can learn more at mariebeecham.com, which is linked in the show notes. I'd love to get the chance to meet you and your group, to connect with your DEI department. Send me an inquiry, and I hope we'll be able to set something up. In other news, if you want to hear more from me and get access to my writing, Patreon is a paid monthly subscription where you get early access to all of my best ideas. Every single Friday, you get an article-style post written by me, and by being part of my Patreon community, you are my most valued supporter. You are the ones who keep the podcast going. And I am so grateful for that support. If you want to be a part of that, you can download the Patreon app or head to the website patreon.com slash Beach, which again is linked in the show notes. In all of its forms, whether it's joining the Patreon or listening to the podcast, I'm so grateful for your support. Now that that's all said, let's get back to learning. So at this point, we've made our way through the first two centuries of slavery in the United States. The population of enslaved people is way, way up. And as I've alluded to, around this same time, the efficiency of cotton production and the expectations for enslaved people's labor and productivity also sees a sharp increase. Our favorite historian, Edward E. Baptist, continues saying that with the dawn of the cotton gin, and focus on cotton production, enslaved people are forced to work from dawn to dusk, and at the end of the day, their output is weighed and recorded. And what's at work here is what we think of as a quintessentially modern idea, that if we enumerate how much people work, we can evaluate that labor better, and then we can demand more from them. And that's what happens. Quotas for daily cotton picking and minimums that you have to make or else you will be whipped clearly increase over time. This is what I was referring to by the evolution of slavery. Slavery was always torturous and always inhumane. And over the years, enslavers are getting more methodical, more measured, more tactical about ensuring they are getting the best possible production, the best yield from their enslaved laborers. Now, something kind of unbelievable, he says, is that the system led to a drastic increase in the output. To be specific, quote, 
in just a 60-year span, from 1800 to 1860, we see an increase of 400% in the average amount of cotton picked per day. Scholars suggest that this could be some combination of changes in the cotton seeds and changes in the cruelty directed toward enslaved people and the torture and the punishments for not producing enough. It's likely that both of those things were a factor in production increasing so, so much. And over time, profits were maximized. So we've arrived now at the early 19th century. That's what we've been talking about. We're working our way right up to the Civil War. And at this point, the nation was divided over the institution of slavery, and it was very uncertain whether enslavers or abolitionists would win out. So for part five here, here are some of the major milestones that mark this battle between slavery and abolitionists leading up to the Civil War itself. First up is the Fugitive Slave Act, or I should say acts, because there were two, one in 1793 and the other in 1850, these were, quote, a pair of federal laws that allowed for the capture and return of runaway enslaved people within the territory of the U.S. These were enacted by Congress, penalizing people who aided people in their escape from slavery and allowing and even incentivizing the people who recaptured those who escaped from slavery. It's said that these were some of the most controversial laws of the early 19th century, and they were devastating for enslaved people and abolitionists, making escape and refuge far more impossible. Other major events included some notable uprisings, namely John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859 and Nat Turner's revolt or Nat Turner's rebellion in August of 1831. Nat Turner was an enslaved man and he led, quote, what is considered the only effective slave rebellion in U.S. history. He saw himself as anointed by God to lead his people out of bondage. So he gathered one of the most sizable groups of slaves in pursuit of their freedom. They killed their enslavers, and they went on the run in hopes of freeing enslaved people all through the South. But this uprising came to a swift and bitter end. And depending on how you look at it, there are really mixed results. Because while this was encouraging for the morale for some enslaved people, the counter-response was overwhelming. There was a whole new wave of legislation putting even more restrictions on the freedoms and opportunities of enslaved people so that they could not be educated or assembled together. And overall, it was a defining event that turned up the heat and intensity on both sides, those who were pro-slavery and those who were abolitionists. Then you have, maybe you've been waiting for this one, the Underground Railroad, an unbelievable operation run by Northerners who were anti-slavery, quote, many of them were free black people, and they had begun helping enslaved people escape from southern plantations to the north via a loose network of safe houses as early as the 1780s, so nearly a century before the Civil War. In a future episode, I would love to dive more into those stories because the courage and selflessness and sacrifice from all involved was remarkable. But in terms of overall historical significance, we have to talk about a monumental Supreme Court case. The famous case is known as Scott v. Emerson and later Scott v. Sanford. This case went on for years. It's the 1850s, so we're talking just before the Civil War. In this case, an enslaved man was taken by his enslaver from slave states in the South to free states in the North where slavery was outlawed. That was the setup because of the Missouri Compromise of 1820. 
So he ended up on free soil in the 1830s. And later, when he was brought back to Missouri, he sued for his freedom because he had previously been living on soil that made him legally free. And what he was trying to do was purchase his freedom from the widow of his enslaver, and she refused. That's what led him to sue for his freedom. And, quote, the verdict effectively declared the Missouri Compromise unconstitutional, ruling that all territories were open to slavery and they could only exclude it when they became states. According to Britannica, quote, Chief Justice Roger Brooke Taney's opinion for the court was arguably the worst he ever wrote. He ignored precedent, distorted history, ignored specific grants of power in the Constitution, and tortured meanings out of other more obscured clauses. So the court ruled that Dred Scott had no right to sue because only citizens have the right to sue, and as an enslaved person, he was not a citizen. But even on this point, quote, Taney stood on shaky constitutional ground. Long story short, terrible ruling in Scott v. Sanford. And it said that, quote, among constitutional scholars, it is widely considered the worst decision ever rendered by the Supreme Court. So Dredd and his wife Harriet Scott, who both filed these lawsuits, were denied the right to buy their freedom. Their lawsuits were first filed in 1846, and the famous Supreme Court ruling was over a decade later, 1857, a lengthy legal battle of the worst variety. So these were some of the final chips to fall just before the Civil War would begin. You just learned all of the most defining events for Black people in the United States of over 200 years of history. That's a lot of learning. And we're just getting started. This is just episode one in the series. So remember, every Tuesday in February, you'll learn the major milestones in a period of Black history in the U.S. And every Thursday, you'll learn about the life and legacy of a specific influential figure during that time period. So, in the next episode, you'll learn about Frederick Douglass, a man born into slavery, who eventually escaped, traveled the world, purchased his freedom, and went on to become one of the most influential people in the U.S., one of the most known figures in the world, even becoming a direct consultant to the president. That's the next episode, so you won't want to miss that. My hope with this series is that I can make getting informed about Black history easy and simple, clear and memorable. And I think we're off to a strong start. Be sure to follow the show, Know Better, Do Better, wherever you listen to the podcast, so that way you see the new episodes as they come up on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And if you're enjoying the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you'd take one second to leave a rating or a review. Helping you learn and grow through this podcast is my deepest passion. So I can't express my appreciation for your ratings, your reviews, sharing online. I really could not do this without you. And I really truly mean it when I say hosting this podcast is an honor and a privilege and a joy. And if you only take away one thing from this episode, I hope it's that change starts with you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.